Dr. Daniel McClellan recently posted a video arguing that God lied to Adam and Eve when he told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The first lie told in the Bible happens in Genesis 2 verse 17 where God tells Adam you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for on the day you eat of it you will surely die. And according to the text of Genesis that just doesn't happen. Later Dr. McClellan gave a little more clarity saying that God was using hyperbole. That's probably what's going on here. There was a use of hyperbole to try to emphasize the seriousness of the consequences. Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil anyway and then God went ah well I gotta punish you and then rattles off all these other punishments that include ultimately death 930 years down the road but is absolutely not a fulfillment of the original threat so while I think very very few people would call hyperbole lying this is still something worth addressing. Now, I have no issue with God potentially lying. In fact, I think it's certainly a possibility in this text. An obvious reason to think God could have been lying is he applauds the Hebrew midwives for lying to the Egyptians. Additionally, Rahab the prostitute who lied to protect the Israelites was seen in a good light in many different texts. So one can certainly make the argument that there are certain situations where lying was perceived as a totally okay thing to do. Also, if it wasn't already clear, I think Dr. McClellan is a great scholar and I'd strongly recommend his videos. With that being said, I don't see this argument for God lying as a very strong one in this case. Forgive me if I'm wrong, but it seems like most of what the argument amounts to is God said they would die if they ate from the fruit. I can't think of another explanation for how Adam did not physically die. The serpent seems to say God was wrong, and therefore, God must have lied. People can watch the video linked in the description if they think I missed something. I disagree with this interpretation for two main reasons. One, it doesn't make sense with all the data in the Genesis narrative. Two, I think Dr. McClellan's explanation involves a narrow way of understanding what death was to an ancient Israelite. We have to remember that we can't assume that the way we understand certain concepts today is how they understood it in ancient times. In support of that, I will cite from Dr. John Harvey Walton's recent dissertation that you can check out online for free in the description. To begin, the most obvious point is that the text never explicitly says God lied, nor does it say that Adam and Eve didn't die. There was no comment on it. One would think that this would have been important to point out. After they ate, we would expect to see something from God like, I told you two youngsters that you would die when you ate from the fruit, but instead I'm just going to kick you out of the garden and take away your access to the tree of life. Some have argued that God gave them grace and allowed them to live, but we don't see a comment about that either. If we assume that they never died like God said would happen after eating of the fruit, the story goes on as if God never said anything about them dying. It's almost as if everybody just forgot that God said that. Or they did die and we're just missing how they died. The second obvious point is that it wasn't as if nothing happened to them. Something actually happened to them. They didn't literally physically die, according to our standards, but something happened that they 
didn't have before, which was that they became like God, which is why God said they couldn't have access to the tree of life. Dr. Walton points out from other texts in the ancient world that this is a big no-no. So the text kind of hints that the death which God said they would receive might be related to this thing that changed them. To understand what death is in this context, we have to understand what the reverse of death is to them. Order. Order was of utmost importance to those in the ancient Near East. They didn't have the security that we have today with the cushy jobs and the nice life. The unpredictable environment characterized by frequent floods and droughts necessitated order for agricultural and communal survival. The rise of early civilizations in this region required organized systems of governance, trade, and defense against external threats. Moreover, their cosmological beliefs emphasized establishing earthly order as a reflection of divine harmony, aligning societies with the perceived will of the gods. In the text of Genesis, we see order and non-order being explicitly manifested in a number of different ways. Genesis 1 is full of references to order. You can check out my video with John Walton if you want more on that. In the second creation account, it starts by the land being synonymous with a desert, which was the epitome of chaos. In fact, the desert is described as death in the ancient Near East. It says there was nobody to take care of the ground. God then orders the place by placing a garden with people to work the land. Then, later, Cain builds a city which is stereotypical of order and safety. You can read Walton's dissertation of Genesis 1-11 and how that relates to order if you're interested. On the other hand, in the ancient Near East, death symbolized a descent into chaos. This descent involved feelings of loss, isolation, vulnerability, and a sense of otherness, much like the disarray and uncertainty one feels during extreme disorder. To put it in simpler terms, when situations got extremely chaotic, people would describe it as feeling akin to death, even if no one was actually dying. This is a way to express the intensity of the turmoil. Walton highlights an example from the text Lala Bel Nimike, where an individual, despite being alive, is mourned by his family as though already dead. Another instance in a letter to Ashurbani Paul says, I was dead, but yearned to see the king, my lord. When I saw the face of the king, my lord, I recovered, and I, who had been starving, prospered again. The biblical psalms also reflect this sentiment, where the psalmist feels dead even when alive. Walton notes how the psalmist likewise considers himself counted among those who go down to the pit, which is, of course, referring to Sheol, where people die, and then it says, and set apart with the dead, and claims that Yahweh brought me up from the realm of the dead, even though in both these cases he is still physically alive. There are instances where being exiled or isolated is seen as death, as in Ezekiel 37, which depicts the nation of Israel, stripped of identity and banished to a foreign land, metaphorically as a mass grave, even though the people are alive and doing well for themselves. You know, all things considered. Additionally, Dr. Wiggerman notes how the power of the realm of the dead is experienced not only in the depth and darkness of graves, cisterns, prisons, and pitfalls, but also in the mighty waters which rush along the surface of the earth. 
William Mora notes how in the old Babylonian version of Gilgamesh, Enkidu has died, so Gilgamesh changes into a chaotic state in order to portray himself as the same state as Enkidu. He notes how Gilgamesh says, I will leave my body covered in grime, wrap it in a lion skin, and roam in the steppe. The grime, the unbathed the body, the animal skin, the absence of human garb, indicate an indication with the dead Enkidu and a return to the world of the steppe from which Enkidu had once come. In the story of Adam and Eve, as portrayed in Genesis 3, their disobedience and their subsequent consequences, like their exile from the Garden of Eden, the introduction of labor pains, and the curse upon the land, can be viewed as manifestations of this disorder and chaos, otherwise known as death. Walton translates God's warning of death as this, Do not take the divine ability to put the world in order, because if you try it, you will fail and fall into chaos. Which is exactly what happens as Eve bears Cain, who kills Abel. Cain then builds a city, which as mentioned before, signified order to the ancient Israelite, and then the world became such a mess of disorder that God sent a flood. You might ask how Walton gets from, do not eat the fruit, to do not take the divine ability to put the world in order. This is how he views what it means to take the fruit. John Walton Sr. describes it like this. Well, when you look at other places in the Old Testament where the knowledge of good and evil as a phrase, not the tree, but just as a phrase, is being used, it's clear that it's used in contexts of wisdom. And Eve, of course, herself identifies it as a tree that is desirable to make one wise. So um, I typically just call it the wisdom tree. You've got the life tree, you've got the wisdom tree. And the next important thing to understand is that wisdom in the ancient world and in the Bible very clearly uh, is the pathway to order. Order is the highest value in the ancient world. And therefore, to find a way to order is important. And wisdom is the descriptive of that way. It makes sense why Proverbs and Ecclesiastes both say that it's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning, the foundation of wisdom. Because if you don't fear the Lord, then whatever pathway, whatever wisdom you might have, is not going to eventuate in order. And so in that sense, uh, it's a wisdom tree. Uh, as I said, God has created people in his image to work alongside him to bring order. That's clear with the language of to subjugate and rule. Uh, those ideas, those are order-bringing activities. Uh, the naming of the animals, order-bringing activities. Uh, but the idea was that they were supposed to work alongside God as his vice regents to bring his order. Uh, the wisdom that they seize from the tree is wisdom that they want to use to make their own pathway to order, to establish an order that's centered on them, that brings benefits to them, that circles around them. And so they seek uh, to be order bringers on their own. Walton argues even more extensively in his dissertation if you want to learn more. Also, bonus argument, if for some reason you don't accept Dr. Walton's interpretation, Dr. Bruce Wells points to garden texts in Babylon, where the leaders of the temple say the workers will die if something happens, 
but then they don't die with zero indication that the leaders that said this were considered liars. We, there are a couple of texts that refer to death. Word is going out from one of these high temple officials to oblates who work in agricultural fields. So they're not working in orchards, they're working in grain fields where they grow barley mostly. And the order is you can't rent out part of the grain field you're responsible for to a sharecropper. So somebody who's not part of the temple personnel, um, but who might want to rent part of a field, the guy says, you grew, you bunch of oblates, you can't do this. You're not authorized to do this. Um, and we lose, we, the temple will lose money if you do this. So don't think you can rent out part of your field to a sharecropper. If you do, you will be put to death. To me, to my mind, based on what I know about how these temples operated, the death threat doesn't seem terribly likely. I mean, it's a little scary, but I don't think they would have put these guys to death. Number one, because it wouldn't have been a huge deal if they actually rented out part of their field to a sharecropper. The temple would have gotten involved, ended, ended that deal with the sharecropper and made sure that it didn't happen again in that field and assign somebody else to watch over the field. But secondly, the temple was constantly short of manpower. Uh, all these temples were, the economy was growing so fast and the temple uh, had so much land on its hands and so much economic activity going on that they couldn't keep up with everything they had to do. Um, and temple oblates didn't have a great life because they were under the thumb of the temple and they often ran away. So we have you know, any number of texts talk about runaway oblates. So I don't think the temple wanted to reduce its workforce by killing off some of its oblates. But this threat of death puts the oblates in a very scary, in a very scary uh, position. And it means we take, we are taking this very, very seriously. You'd better not do this or you're going to be in big trouble. Um, but we have, as I said before, we have a lot of these texts that, that say on the day, but other texts will just say if, like the one I just talked about. And these are what I call conditional verdicts. They say if a certain condition is fulfilled, then here's the verdict that will come down. And I see God's threat to Adam in the Eden story as a conditional verdict. He says, you can eat from all these trees. That's fine. That's great. But on the day you eat from the tree of knowledge, you will surely die. So it fits the pattern of the temple administration in the sense that it's the temple administrator, in this case, God himself, issuing an order to a temple servant and including in the order a conditional verdict about the punishment that will ensue if the servant disobeys. So I think that's another interesting connection. That's one text that mentions death. Another one uh, is broken in all the most interesting places, and we can't read all of it, but it's about some kind of riot, I think, that was taking place in the city of Uruk, where one of these main temples is, and um, certain people had to be guarded, and they, they might end up getting put to death. And then the third one um, is directed at some of these temple priests I talked about, and it says that if they go work at another temple, and they don't confine their work to the temple in the city of Uruk, then they will be considered to have broken their oath 
of loyalty to the king. And if you break your oath of loyalty to the king, there's a good chance you'll be put to death for that. Um, so the temple authorities are sort of raising the stakes here and saying, um, we need you guys here at our temple, nowhere else, because we actually know these guys moonlighted on the side and would go do work for other temples when they could. Um, so they're saying, no, all your work needs to happen here at our temple. Um, and if you go work for another temple, we're going to take that very, very seriously. So the temple would issue these death threats occasionally, it seems. In one case, to oblates about renting out to sharecroppers. In one case, to priests about working at other temples. Um, but the, But... There's plenty of evidence to show that these temple authorities could change the punishment if they saw fit. So remember, I called these conditional verdicts, and that's exactly what they are. They're conditional on various things. They're conditional, A, on whether or not the person disobeys who's being given the order. And I think they're conditional on the circumstances involved in the disobedience. So the temple might say, we're going to fine you. 30 shekels of silver, or we're going to put you to death if you disobey. But in the case of actual disobedience, the temple can change its mind and issue some other punishment. Um, and I think that's what's going on in the Eden story. God says, if you eat from the tree of knowledge, you will die. They eat from the tree of knowledge. But as I read the story, they actually don't die. Uh, and a different sort of punishment is placed on them, such as pain and childbirth of the woman, um, and difficulty in getting crops to grow for the man. So I think, um, God, I don't think that Yahweh is lying or is just wrong about death. It's part of how temple authorities dealt with their servants. If they wanted them to take something super seriously, they might issue a death threat, but they could always change their minds. And I say change their minds, but it's really, um, they could always impose a penalty that they thought was more appropriate than the one they had initially included in the conditional verdict. Uh, when we're talking about like Old Testament law, um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of scholars that are talking about how, you know, they weren't necessarily like a specific set of rules to be used in like court situations. It was more of a, a kind of like a guidelines for like, you know, this punishment, that would be a good one, but it doesn't have to be that kind of thing. Um, and it, it seems like a little bit of a similarity here as well with mm -hmm. Babylon. Do you see that similarity, and do you think that has any relation there? I do, and I, um, I, I don't think you got that connection from me from reading any of my stuff. Anyway, I think that's a very excellent observation because um, I do think there's a definite connection here. And as I read biblical law, I see it in much that same way. I think these rules were important and they embody or are emblematic of what covenant loyalty to Yahweh is supposed to look like. But when it comes to the punishments and the laws, I would, I would see those as the harshest penalty allowed by law or the fullest extent of the law. So we might say, you know, if you do such and such today, you get up to 20 years in prison. But there are always negotiations that go on. You might reach a plea agreement. The judge might sentence you to something less. And for much of biblical law, I think um, this is what's going on. I think this is the case of other with other ancient Eastern law codes as, as well. 
um, the punishments listed tend to be the harshest punishments allowed by that particular legal system. Now, when you get into certain priestly texts, uh, like Numbers 35, you'll see things like, um, in the case of intentional homicide, you're not allowed to accept a ransom payment in lieu of the death penalty. You really do have to put the person to death. And I think um, in that case, they're reacting to this standard tradition of allowing people to negotiate a lesser punishment in some fashion. And they're trying to say, um, in these very serious cases like intentional homicide, you really need to follow through with the death penalty and not allow some lesser punishment. But generally speaking, um, I would agree with your observation, or, or I mean, I don't know if this is your opinion, but anyway, I, I would agree with what you described and say, um, again, I think it's the fullest extent of the law. And I think, yeah, that understanding fills in some of the background for the conditional verdict in the Eden story, where the conditional verdict tells you what the fullest extent of the law is, but the authority, in this case Yahweh, can uh, differ or diverge from that uh, in the end. In this view, God is only a liar if using hyperbole and figurative language makes someone a liar. If literal physical death is not expected when God said, you will surely die, then that certainly wouldn't fit the definition most people use of lying. And just to let you know, the texts that Dr. Wells bring up fit with the view that Dr. Walton is arguing for. In summation, Genesis 2 might possibly be describing God lying, but it probably doesn't because death was being used to describe the chaotic state they became after eating the fruit. God didn't lie because they actually did die, just not how we understand death in the 21st century. Additionally, we have texts of people Additionally, we have texts of people in garden contexts being told they will die and then they don't physically die, so we have specific evidence in this case in the exact same context which pretty much proved that accusing God of lying shouldn't be our first option. If you enjoyed this video, like and subscribe. I will be going into more detail in Dr. Walton's views here and I hope you guys will stay tuned to find out.